Welcome. Good evening to tonight's webinar. I'm Alan Carey, the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. So excited to have you all here with us tonight. It's going to be a, a fantastic conversation. Really thrilled to have our, our panelists tonight on a topic that couldn't be more timely. Uh, let me very quickly welcome you all to tonight's webinar. Like I mentioned, we're gonna be talking about student debt relief. We'll be talking a little bit about uh, some of the opportunities and challenges when it comes to thinking about student debt relief as policy and getting an opportunity to understand a little bit better about some of the implications of that policy conversation. Let me go ahead and very quickly introduce our guests. I'm excited about our panelists joining us tonight. They're a fantastic group of speakers with incredible credentials in the space, and then talk a little bit more about what to expect in our conversation tonight. Joining us this evening is Jared Bass, the Senior Director for Higher Education at American Progress. Prior to this role, Bass was a professional staff member on the House Appropriations Committee, where he helped shape COVID-19 relief legislation, including the CARES Act. Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act and the American Rescue Plan. He has served as the Senior Counsel for Education and Strategy in the Education Policy Program at New America, the Federal Director at the Post-Secondary National Policy Institute, a Senior Policy Advisor within the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development in the U.S. Department of Education, and the Lead Higher Education Staffer on the House Committee on Education and the Workforce Democratic Staff. Joining him this evening is Neil McCluskey, the director of Cato Center for Educational Freedom. He is the author of the recent book, The Fractured Schoolhouse, Reexamining Education for a Free, Equal, and Harmonious Society, and is the co-editor of multiple additional volumes. McCluskey also maintained Cato's public schooling battle map, an interactive database of values and identity-based conflicts in public schools, and oversees Cato's private schooling status tracker. McCluskey is on the editorial board of the journal School Choice and the editorial advisory board of The Line, a journal promoting civil discourse in K-12 policy debates. His writings have appeared in such publications as The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Forbes, and he has appeared on numerous television and radio programs. And I just recently discovered Neil was uh, previously in an earlier part of his life, a high school history, uh, English teacher. Is that right, Neil? Yes, a long time ago. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, Jared, Neil, thank you guys so much for joining us, uh, and teachers and uh, those joining us in the audience, thank you so much for uh, coming here tonight for the conversation. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Really excited about what we're talking about tonight. What we want to do is take the first part of the evening tonight and talk a little bit about uh, how we got to where we are, talk a little bit about the situation when it came to student loans and the situation in America, the most recent announcements from the uh, president and the Biden administration about opportunities or potential opportunities uh, around student debt cancellation, and then some questions around well, the appropriateness of that policy and some of the legal uh, ramifications of what's happening already. So fascinating and lively topic, excited to have everyone here and very much so excited to have you all uh, join us. I want to encourage you, like always, uh, please do put your questions in the chat. We'll spend lots of time incorporating those into the conversation tonight. Uh, to begin, gentlemen, I'd love to turn the conversation over to you, Jared. Thank you for joining us tonight. I would love if you could give our, our teachers joining us this evening just a quick overview of the situation before the announcement. What were some of the, the general features of student debt in America, particularly uh, that at the federal level, and some of the important things to know about uh, where we are and how we got here? Of course. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. And I have to say that I come from a family of educators. So having this discussion in front of, you know, educators such as yourself is, is such a treat. Uh, my mom, public school teacher for 30 years, my brother taught in charter schools. He's a principal. 
my dad's school board, you know, relatives, uh, all over education. So these are the types of conversations that we have around our dinner, dinner table. So I'm glad we can all uh, be around the dinner table tonight. You know, how we got here. So I, I think the, the path um, to debt cancellation is an interesting one. Um, I think regardless of where you sit, whether you are for debt cancellation or against debt cancellation, one thing is clear, you know, debt cancellation is an unprecedented uh, acknowledgement of kind of the student debt crisis or the situation with student debt in our country. Uh, right now, we have about 43 million, uh, you know, uh, uh, student loan borrowers who hold about 1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Uh, in 2008, that figure was 577 billion. Um, so just in that short period, we've seen you know debt just escalate and compound um, over time to realize you know this 1.6 trillion um, you know uh, problem. <clears throat> I think coupled with that is one thing. You know, loans were supposed to be a means of access for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to go to college. Um, that was their intention and their purpose, um, especially for middle-class families, you know, folks who didn't have capital to pay out of pocket to be able to attend a, a college um, would be able to access uh, government-backed loans in order to have access to higher education and to better themselves. Uh, you know, one of the problems is that, you know, we had a loan program that kept going, we kept funding, um, but then other subsidies that were provided to, to students, especially low-income students, um, did not keep pace. We have the Pell Grant program, um, which, you know, I'm sure you all have seen, you know, statistic that says that it used to cover around 80% of, you know, going to a four-year public college um, a long time ago, you know, 80s, not that long, apologies, um, but, you know, now only covers roughly about a third of attending that university. Uh, the U.S. government spends about 85 billion, um, at least is scheduled to spend 85 billion uh, in loan volume. That's new loan volume uh, for fiscal year 23 alone. Uh, also for 2022, spent roughly around 85 billion in loans. Uh, the things that that's interesting about that is that's more than Pell grants, work study, FSCOG, other forms of subsidies provided to students who want to attend, you know, thorough, uh, who want to attend uh, college or. You know, obtain a post-secondary degree um, combined. So we're spending, you know, the large, uh, largest amount of money that we have, we're spending um, on loans. And so I think that that is one path, you know, or, or one way uh, that's given rise to the current student debt crisis. I think, you know, other people have pointed to state disinvestment, you know, 2008 uh, economic crisis and collapse, um, and then also just high enrollment, right? I think, you know, decision of lots of people to actually want to pursue higher education as a safe bet um, in the means of economic crisis and turmoil. I think that that was like another factor that led to kind of skyrocketing uh, loan debt and volume. Um, also, I think, you know, a lack of accountability within the higher education system too. We saw for-profit institutions um, creep up even around the time of the GI Bill, um, and then, you know, just kind of stay around and, and linger for a while. And so I think, you know, for-profit, um, also, you know, not to be controversial, but also other, other sectors as well. I think anyone who is uh, not providing the education that they said they would provide to students um, can be seen as a poor actor or a bad actor. And so I think, you know, a lack of accountability for those educational outcomes um, is key. We also have a system where if you graduate from college, you pay your debt, I think we all you know, are aware of that. But if you don't graduate with a post-secondary degree or credential, 
you still are obligated to pay back your debt, even if you don't realize the benefit of actually, you know, pursuing a higher education. So I think there are a lot of factors, but I think one thing is clear is that, you know, this announcement, whether you're for or against it, is in response to, I think, this current situation that we have with the you know, student loan debt uh, in, you know, America, and, you know, some would say student debt crisis. Jared, thanks so much for that introduction. And also, uh, really excited. And I forgot that you had mentioned when we previously talked about the your family also being so heavily involved in education. I, I love that. And I'm really glad you've got an opportunity to be here and share that with us. Uh, Neil, I'd love to any additional comments you have to, to add any additional color to what Jared has already said about the, the condition up to now. And uh, in addition to that, uh, tell us a little bit more about what what's been announced so far. What what do we know? And, and frankly, what don't we know at this point? All right. Well, I'll try and do three things. I'll just say hello to everyone, by the way. Um, three things. One of them is sort of a shameless plug, but uh, Alan, you went through some things that, that I've done uh, that are on my bio at Cato, but there's a book I should make sure it gets in there because it's actually a book about higher education policy, which we're talking about. It's called Unprofitable Schooling, Examining Causes of and Fixes for America's Broken Ivory Tower. So if you want to learn a whole lot more about uh, sort of Cato views on or Cato people's views on the higher ed system. It's worth checking out. It doesn't just deal with student debt and costs. It delves into a lot of things that people say kind of are problems in higher education, questions about does the faculty have too much power, do administrators have too much power, is tenure a problem, but it also gets into a lot of the cost issues. So it's, I think it's a pretty good uh, overview of what people are debating in higher education, and it's a shameless plug, so, you know, what the heck, um, so you can check that out. Uh, then I just, uh, I'm going to put a slightly different framing on this than Jared, because we got to have some discussion, right, and some debate, uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about what's been proposed. Uh, I, I'll preface this by saying I can't think of anybody who thinks the student loan system is working well, um, there are huge problems, and I think there's a lot of widespread agreement on a lot of these problems. But I would say it's not a, a crisis. And the reason I say it's not a crisis is I think there are a lot of people who do have loans that they have trouble repaying. I think student loans actually help fuel uh, higher sticker prices because they enable people to access more money so colleges can raise their prices. Um, I think we have to focus on specific subsets of folks who have student loans in particular, as Jared mentioned, there's a big problem when people take on debt, but then don't complete a program. And we have a lot of people with that uh, in that situation. But it's also worth seeing the other side of this. And the first major thing to understand is people who complete a degree are setting themselves up on average for much higher lifetime earnings. So the average person who gets a bachelor's degree is expected to make about 1.3 million more dollars over their lifetime than someone with just a high school diploma. If you get a medical degree, you're going to expect to make about 3.1 million more dollars over your lifetime. So that debt, even though loans are probably too high, debt is too high because college prices are too high, that is still good debt for the people who, who complete a degree, especially if they complete one in an area that is in high demand. And so for that reason, I don't think we really have a crisis. There are some particular subsets of borrowers who are having great difficulty, but borrowers across the board aren't. Um, and I think one thing about this proposal is it tends to provide assistance and relief 
for a lot of people who are not in that subset. And so that's sort of a very poorly done bridge to, well, so what does this do? Um, and I'm going to run through the major points. I'm sure there are things I'll forget. You, and there's more to come actually on this. So the main thing that people have been talking about is the proposal to cancel debt. And the proposal is that it will cancel debt of $10,000 for anybody with federal student debt. Um, there's some questions about whether or not private can get rolled into there. But with federal student debt, uh, if you have $10,000 and you are, have an income of $125,000 as an individual, or if you're filing jointly and you have $250,000 of income, you are eligible for $10,000 of relief. If you got a Pell Grant, you are eligible for an additional $10,000 of relief. So that focuses it more on sort of lower income folks who tend to be the ones who are having more trouble paying off, but it still includes, even by the administration's own uh, uh, analysis, all but the top 5% of earners in the country. So that's a lot of people, I'd say, who don't necessarily need assistance from taxpayers covering the debt that they agreed to take on. Uh, there are some other things in there, though, that are important. I don't know how much we'll talk about them, but I just wanted to throw these out so you get a, an idea of the overall policy. It would also change something called income-driven repayment. Right now, uh, you have you take on debt. You can go in a number of income-driven repayment plans. And one of the problems with student debt is it's just too complicated. Um, but you can go to a number of these. And the idea is if your income is low, you don't pay a lot. Um, and if it stays low, you get forgiveness in a certain number of years. It can be 20 years, it can be 25 years. If it's public service loan forgiveness, it's 10 years. Again, too complicated, but th there is income-driven repayment so that people who are struggling aren't necessarily underwater or buried by their debt. The uh, Biden plan, plan would change this somewhat. Right now, you, um, you don't pay, uh, you pay 10% of your discretionary income. That's uh, currently income over, I think it's 150% of the poverty level. Um, he would change that to 5%. And then it would be 5% and exclude income. If I recall correctly, that is uh, under 225% of the poverty level so that you have more people paying less so that it's less onerous on a lot of people. Um, he would forgive balances. Uh, let me make sure I have this one right. After 10 years, not 20, for debtors who have a balance of $12,000 or less um, would also cover unpaid uh, interest. You wouldn't have that put back into the amount you owed and capitalized. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say, I'm sure there are things I've missed, but I believe the administration said more details will be coming in October. And I believe last I heard the beginning of October. So there's gonna be more sort of flesh put on the bones of this in the coming weeks. Thanks, Neil, for that additional context and, and laying a little bit of what's going on. It's a, a complicated policy. And as you both have already noted, there's a lot of moving pieces to it right now as, uh, more information is coming out. Uh, Jared, real quick, before we, we dig into the, the uh, our thoughts on the policy, good or bad, any additional things that you'd like to make sure you share about what's been announced or, or what we don't know so far? Yeah, no, I agree with uh, with Neil's assessment of, or, you know, the overarching policy. Um, you know, things I, I would just add is, you know, there's the IDR piece, then um, also the president noted, you know, needing to take additional action for accountability and also the controlling the cost of college, which I, I think we'll hear more about in the, the coming months as well. 
Um, I, I think that there are areas for agreement. I, I agree with Neil on this. You know, whether or not you frame this as a crisis or you know a problem, there are borrowers who are in crisis. You know, there are borrowers who are in need, whether they be you know borrowers who didn't realize the full fruits of you know um, having a a uh, college education, or borrowers who even if they you know, realize, uh, you know, a degree don't earn as much as maybe, you know, their counterparts with a high school diploma. And I think this is where we get into the issues of like race and gender as well, where you have some college graduates who don't, you know, some graduates of color who actually don't earn as much as, you know, high school uh, graduates who aren't, you know, people of color. Um, so I think that it's a very complex issue. Um, there are a lot of, you know, um, areas for, for exploration, I think also areas for agreement, um, but also, you know, controlling college costs and also thinking about the loans and the educational experience that I have is certainly going to be different than, you know, the educational experience my children have and my educational experience and cost of college and going to college and need to borrow is certainly different than, you know, a generation ago, like my, my folks, when I talk to them about, you know, their educational pursuits. Um, so I think, you know, certainly agree that, I don't know anyone who will say that we have a student loan system that's functional and working. Um, and I do think that, you know, leading, I think, up to you know, our next segment for discussion, uh, debt cancellation is, is one step to, to help right the ship, um, you know, and help us to have conversations, I think, you know, such as this one that matter, where we can talk about accountability, college costs, and affordability, you know, more and more broadly. Excellent. So, Jared, actually, I want to we'll keep with you. I'd love to move into this next part of the conversation and begin by thinking about the policy in terms of both, uh, well, both of your thoughts about the policy in terms of what do you like about it, what do you think is problematic about it, and uh, we'll start there. We'll get into the the, the weeds from this point. I think this will we'll get to some of the the fun parts of agreement and disagreement. So, Jared, uh, from your analysis and your team's uh, look at the policy, where would you say we like this? It's moving in the right direction. Maybe we'd like to see this or that differently, but but here's generally where you come out on the topic. So I, I think, you know, first of all, I like it all. I'll just say that. Um, no, no, I, what, what I'll say is that I think, you know, the particular focus on, on Pell Grant recipients is, is helpful. You know, Center for American Progress has you know, supported broad-based debt cancellation of at least $10,000. You know, that that is the, the official policy of, you know, of our organization. Um, also making sure that, you know, it, there's ease of access, that it's, you know, as broad as possible. Um, and so I think, you know, recognition of the subsets of, you know, different borrowers and just, you know, kind of the complexities of policy design, especially, you know, when you're going through this process of executive order, you know, having a system where you have $10,000 for, you know, a large majority of borrowers um, who, you know, as Neil alluded to, a um, majority of which are making less than $75,000. So, we're seeing a majority of the borrowers receiving forgiveness are actually, um, you know, making less than, than that amount, a majority of which are also making less than the median um, income level, you know, um, across the across the country as well. Um, so I think those are aspects that we like, um, you know, seeing who it, who it benefits, seeing who it helps. Um, also the addition of Pell Grants to actually act as kind of a recognition that, you know, the Pell Grant did not keep pace um, over the years with the, you know, college costs, rising college costs, and also the, you know, um, dependence on loans to make up some of the, you know, difference between what the Pell Grant could cover and, and you know, cost of college. Um, 
So I think those are certainly aspects that we like as well. And I think the fact that debt cancellation was tied to this conversation around, you know, college costs, accountability, affordability, you know, thinking about IDR and PSLF as well, um, are also aspects of the policy that we, 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 you know, do like. And that's something actually we call for. We Sorry, shameless plug again, uh, but Neil started it. Um, so we, we wrote a report, report um, prior to the president uh, announcing debt cancellation called After President Biden Cancels Debt. Um, and those were some of the things that we called for, that this should be part of a larger conversation around you know, those three key areas uh, of college costs. We, we have to look at that. You know, we can't just have debt cancellation and divorce from a conversation of well, how we actually control you know, rising college costs. Otherwise, we may be in a situation where you know, we have a student debt crisis again. Um, and then also looking about how do we make college affordable, whether it be through investments in Pell Grants, and also just looking at the purpose of the loan program. Is the purpose of the federal student loan program serving its intended purpose that we talked about a little bit earlier as far as access? Um, and then of course, accountability, you know, holding institutions accountable, um, I think are aspects that we like as well. And then also the fact that, and you know, this came to mind too, the 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 breadth of loans that were included in this announcement. You know, I think, you know, we saw media reports that said, oh, it's going to be this loan or that loan, or you know, it's not going to include you know these people. And then you know, there's you know, public outcry. Um, but the fact that includes Parent Plus borrowers, who frankly are borrowers who I think at the short end of the federal lending stick or federal uh, you know loan policy. Um, you know, the fact that they're included and that they can have their debts forgiven, um, that they took out to help their children, um, you know, actually pursue a higher education, um, that's a huge positive as well. And so I think including those types of loans, um, which, you know, again, um, have, have not served, I would say, uh, the intended purpose of a student loan program or parent borrowers particularly well, um, is, is really, really helpful and encouraging to see as part of the president's uh, announcement. Thanks, Sharon. Uh, same question, Neil. When you're uh, taking a look at this policy, what are some of the things to like? And I think uh, I know the answer. What are some of the things that you don't like uh, about this approach and uh, some things that uh, what you think can be improved upon some of the approach that's being taken so far? Yeah, well, I will be starkly contrasting Jared and saying I don't like any of it. Um, although I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the people who get debt forgiveness. Uh, certainly, if you have student debt, there's no reason you should be upset, at least for you personally, to get this cancellation. Uh, my concern is all the huge unintended consequences that go with this. Um, and I'm especially concerned about the way it was done. But, uh, and I guess I should also say, I'm not sure that it's really geared toward people who need help the most, especially if you're going to connect it to COVID. So I hope I remember all those things and hopefully I can unpack them real fast. But um, the first thing I'd say is I gave you the, uh, that income, um, the earnings uh, premium that you get with a degree on average. I don't see a justification for saying that taxpayers should give somebody money that was in the form of a loan so that the person who gets the loan can make 1.3 to 3.1 million more dollars over their lifetime and then they are not obligated to repay those taxpayers. Understanding that about two thirds of American adults don't have a bachelor's degree. So many people haven't gone to college and many of those people pay taxes. Why should they be responsible for the, what people took on as a loan? 
And we got to put a price tag on this. Now, there are lots of debates about what the price tag is, and there are more details that need to come. It's also hard to project how many people will, will claim uh, the cancellation, how many people would have been IDR, on IDR and not on IDR, so you do the offsets. But the range that I've seen is around the cost of 400 billion, which just came out from CBO uh, yesterday, I think it was, to 500 billion to 600 billion. It depends also how you include various parts of this that are not loan cancellation. But that's a lot of money. That's bigger than the GT GDP of most countries when you talk about something of that size. That means taxpayers are going to have to pay that. What I don't think is actually it'll have a big influence on or impact on overall inflation. A lot of people have said that this is probably too small because it affects monthly payments to do that. What it will lead to more inflation on is college prices. One of the biggest problems with student loans is that it easily gave people money to pay more for college and in particular graduate school where there's no cap on those loans and where we've seen a huge increase in the total amount of loans. Um, you'll see that this just enables colleges to raise their prices higher and faster because the expectation going forward will be I'll take a loan, but they can't really make me repay it. How do you justify having done it in the past and not doing it in the future? There will be a lot of pressure from now on to say, you've got to have another Jubilee on these loans. And so if it does fuel that inflation, it hurts everybody, including everybody who wants to go to college in the future, because they're confronted with even more intimidating, ridiculously inflated prices. That's a huge problem. The last major problem uh, I'll mention, I'm sure they're semi-forgotten, but we have a credential inflation problem. We've had more and more people going to college and getting degrees, although if you look at assessments of adult literacy, each of the average degree represents less and less literacy, which may mean it represents less and less learning. But we have employers increasingly calling for a degree, even though the job itself hasn't changed, in large part because there are more and more degrees out there. And so we're also hurting people if we say, keep putting money into going to college, get a, always and very important just to get a degree. We're putting people on basically a treadmill where you got to run faster and faster to stay in the same place in the labor market. And I find that is very concerning too. And then I, there was one other thing I meant to mention because I said at one point, this was what concerned me most. Doing this by executive order strikes me as blatantly unconstitutional. Congress has the power of the purse, not the president. The president by executive order saying what were loans or now essentially grants seems to me to be spending money that was not authorized to be spent in that way. And I think that that is a clear violation of the constitution. Neil, thanks for that. Uh, before I get into one additional point and then some questions from the teachers, we're getting a lot of great ones in and keep them coming. Uh, Jared, I wanted to give you a chance to respond. Neil raised a, a lot of points and, and addressed some of the things that you talked about. What would you say in response to, to some of the concerns that Neil raises? Yeah, so I think the 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 last point, you know, which you know, I, I certainly uh, appreciate Neil for raising, is the whole idea of spending. And as a former appropriator, like that, that's the one that sticks out the most is this idea of you know the purse. And my appropriator friends will tell you, I'll talk about this till I'm blue in the you know the face. I also used to be on the you know policy side or the authorizing side of uh, the hill as well. And so 
you know, I, I debate myself on this. Um, but, you know, I do think that Congress did provide the money up front, right? So every year the president actually accounts and we have this accounting system. That's also what CBO went through, you know, this week as well to say, well, listen, we are going to give out $85 billion. That's the number I used earlier um, to, you know, make loans available to, to students so that then they can attend higher education. That's real money. You know, when Congress actually makes that money available, that money is actually lining the pockets of universities and colleges you know, academic programs, professional degree programs, you know, trade schools, you name it. Um, so that money is real money that's being used to pay their salaries. Um, when they budget for that, they, you know, they use budgeting mechanisms to actually say, you know, I don't think we're going to get all this money back for various reasons. You know, we have got these government programs, people may not just pay it, you know, I we figure this out. And so even CBO's own recognition is that it's very uncertain. Every year that we actually provide the 85 billion or, you know, however um, much money we provide new loans, um, it's real spending, it's real dollars that have already been appropriated, already been made, um, and we don't know how much is going to be repaid. Um, whether that's good policy or bad policy is also subject for conversation and debate, but that, that's just the system that they, they use right now. Um, so I do believe that, you know, the funding has already been provided, it's already been appropriated. Um, and so I think, you know, the president has mentioned, and I think others have talked about this as well, that, you know, the president does have modification authority. He does have, you know, the, the you know, condition or the ability to be able to change loans. And actually, um, HEROES, you know, we'll have a conversation around something called the HEROES Act and emergency powers, which, yeah, essentially just emergency powers that allow the president to be able to decide how much of a loan to pay back or whether or not, you know, a loan needs to be paid back as well. Um, so that, that was one thing. Um, I do think, you know, areas for agreement though, I always love pointing those out with, with my friends. Um, you know, I think Neil and I both agree on college prices. I think Neil and I both agree on, um, degree creep, you know, as it were, um, the idea of like requiring more credentials from people, just feeling the system, um, of having a master's degree for a job where you used to only need a bachelor's degree. Um, or having a bachelor's degree requirement where you used to just need a high school diploma. Um, and so whether or not that's actually justified. Um, and as a higher ed guy saying that, you know, I think we're going to make some news tonight. Um, but then also, you know, I think the other thing that sticks out to me is just that borrowers are taxpayers. You know, these are people who are also paying taxes, um, you know, and their taxpayer dollars are also being used for cancellation. Um, so I just don't want to lose sight of that and not, not you know, saying that, that we are, but it's just always an important point, I think, for me personally to make in, you know, these debates and these conversations. Um, also, I just will point this out, too, is that, you know, we are taxing these borrowers. So even though the loan conditions may have changed, you know, Neil pointed out this, these are going to be higher earners. As they earn more money, they're going to be taxed more and more. Um, so that actually comes back into the federal coffers as well. Student loans are such an interesting thing to me personally, just because, we say, look, in order to get ahead, in order to you know, be able to provide for yourself and your family, take out this loan, go into debt, pay back the debt. Um, but then as you gain more and more income, we're going to keep taxing you more and more as well. So you will owe us more and we will tax you more in order to you know, get this commodity or this thing. I'm not saying that that is good or bad, but I just always think it's you know, an interesting um, you know, function of our system. Um, but yeah, I think there are certainly, um, you know, pointed out, we're going to have different takes on this. Um, and I think that that is fine, all part, of the, all part of the process, but certainly I think there are areas for agreement and excited to see, you know, how we can um, continue in conversation to, to solve some of these issues moving forward.
So the last question that I want to ask the two of you before pulling in some of the really fantastic questions coming in from the teachers so far is about uh, what the, the variety of pending legal challenges we expect uh, in front of this case. Uh, as many of you may have seen, we saw the, the first legal action filed, uh, I believe it was yesterday in Indiana through the, the Pacific Legal Foundation questioning some of the concerns around this. Uh, Neil, let me throw this to you first. What are some of the, the the pending legal questions in front of this effort and and some of the ones we can expect to see? Uh, and then, Jared, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. What are what are some of the things that are likely to withstand challenge and what are some of the things that are, are, are interesting concerns, knowing that the uh, law is always an interesting question of where it will go when it's ultimately decided? But Neil, get us started. Uh, what's, a, what's a question when it comes to this pending approach? Right. So I guess the first thing the lawyers would tell me is I have to use a disclaimer that I'm not a lawyer. So none of this is official legal advice. And if it's wrong, what do I know? I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I've looked into this a little bit. Um, and since I did make a pretty strong argument or at least assertion that this is not constitutional, that's sort of the overarching sort of question is, is it constitutional for the president to take what were loans and essentially turn them into grants. Uh, it hinges though more sort of concrete legally on, as Jared mentioned, the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act was passed, I think it was 2003, kind of in the wake of 9-11, we're sending soldiers off to, to Iraq and Afghanistan. And the idea was that those, we didn't want those soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines who are deployed to end up in a worse position vis-a-vis -vis their student loans than if they hadn't been deployed because they were serving in what's called a national emergency. And so if you were going to be unable to make payments because you're overseas, you may not be earning as much or something like that, you wouldn't be harmed with regards to your loans. Now, that also includes a provision, though, that says it's for national emergencies, not just regarding the military. So a lot of it's about military. They called it the HEROES Act, presumably, because it's about the military. But if you're in any place that is sort of, or acting or impacted, I should say, by anything called a national emergency, then you can be qualified for these uh, waivers to protect you from being harmed as a result of that emergency. And the thinking is, well, the whole country was under a national emergency as a result of COVID-19. And so that this law then enables the Secretary of Education, but through the direction of the president, to do things like cancel this amount of loans so that people don't end up worse off with regards to their loans as a result of the national emergency. Now, I think that that's dubious because we've had a freeze on repayment for, it'll be about two and three quarter years by the time we get to the end of the year where it said, look, nobody has to repay your, your loans right now, started in March, 2020, um, and there's no interest charge when you don't pay. And that time counts toward your income-driven repayment time um, where you don't, an income-driven repayment, you know, you, you have to do, again, 10 years, 20 years, or 25 years, depending on the program. But that's essentially three years where you haven't had to pay, but it counts toward that forgiveness. I would say that that actually has made people better off vis-a-vis -vis their loans, but the argument is that they're worse off. Regardless of what anybody thinks, though, about the legality of it, the constitutionality of it, of course, those are connected. The big question, at least this is what the lawyers tell me, and I'll believe the lawyers, 
um, is that it's very hard for somebody to get standing in this suit because I would argue that the people most hurt by changing these loans into, into grants are the taxpayers who will have to cover that difference, that lost revenue. But there's very strong precedent that you don't have a claim, you don't have standing just as a taxpayer saying, I don't like how the federal government uses my money. Because let's be honest, I'd sue like every day if it, were, if it came down to that. Um, so they said that. And then the other problems are you have to establish that there's been some harm done to you. And that's actually pretty hard to do. Um, because for the most part, you know, people who are getting the forgiveness, they're better off with the forgiveness than without it. Um, and then if you don't get it, so some people have said, well, what if you just missed the income cutoff? Couldn't you sue? Well, not really, because you're not actually worse off than you would have been in the absence of it on an absolute scale. Maybe relative to somebody who gets it, you'd be worse off, but it's hard to do that. Some people have argued that loan servicers could sue. Loan servicers are people who have contracts with the U.S. Department of Education to administer these loans and to help borrowers. And some people said, well, you know, they're supposed to get you know, fees for everybody that they help and they, they expect a certain revenue. And if a whole bunch of it's forgiven, they're gonna lose a lot of revenue. My understanding though, is it's hard for them to, to have standing because the servicers aren't why the program exists. And it's good that we don't have programs that exist for the people who are hired to execute them. It's for the people who are supposed to benefit and that they might not have standing. So what we saw today with the Pacific Legal Foundation is somebody saying, in a very interesting uh, angle on this, which I'm still getting my head around, that this person is in income-driven repayment, is also on the path to get public service loan forgiveness, is in a state where he would be charged taxes on whatever amount of debt was forgiven. And he said he would be better off if there weren't forgiveness because then he wouldn't have to pay the taxes and he would still get the public service loan forgiveness. Now, what I saw very late today was that the administration, I believe was saying, unless it was somebody just reporting a rumor, that the administration would say, you are welcome to opt out of having your loans forgiven, in which case there, I don't think that there's a case at all here. That is the only case I have seen filed against this. I know that there are lawyers working on other angles, but this is the only one that I think has been filed and that anybody has seen. Thanks, Neil. Uh, Jared, what are your thoughts on the, the legality of this effort, both in terms of uh, laws on the books, but also constitutionality more broadly? Yeah, so, you know, I think we both touched on this earlier. So, you know, the president um, did cite the HEROES Act uh, for, you know, his ability to be able to issue debt cancellation in the way that he did. Um, I uh, we'll also make the disclaimer. Um, I am a lawyer, but I'll make a different disclaimer and just saying that I'm not here to provide legal advice. Um, I will not be debating or arguing this policy before any, um, you know, court uh, on behalf of the administration. But, you know, I will say that um, I think we all have seen or, you know, for, for folks who aren't aware that the administration um, did release a legal memo actually outlining um, it's a, you know, it's belief or it's assessment that it does have the legal authority to be able to uh, issue debt cancellation to you know um, millions of, of borrowers 
um, through you know the Heroes Act and you know lays out kind of the legal analysis for why why that is the case. Um, and I think it's a great resource for actually understanding um, you know the president's mindset, the administration's mindset um, as far as the legality of this. Um, so I think it's a great resource and. You know, I, I won't be able to explain that any better than the administration did. Um, and I, I think, you know, Neil certainly gave a comprehensive overview of kind of the situation we are now with the PLF, uh, PLF case. Um, also issues and just, you know, withstanding, showing harm, um, but also like equitable remedies, you know, so we've heard servicers and, you know, others. And I think this is all mill right now. Um, but, you know, certainly we are seeing, you know, um, legal action, you know, challenging this. I mean, I, I, it's not surprising, you know, I think folks said that there's going to be legal action challenging this. Um, and so I think, you know, that uh, conversation will still be ongoing, but certainly the president did make a determination to say, hey, I do have the legal authority to do this. Um, and so therefore did it, outlined that in a memo that his administration put out. Um, and they're standing by that analysis, they're standing by that memo. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if, you know, even procedurally, this case is able to move forward um, for the reasons that, you know, Neil mentioned in his, uh, his overview. Excellent. So, gentlemen, let's, uh, let's turn to some of the questions that we're getting in from teachers. They cover a wide variety of topics. Where I wanted to start is a really interesting question that came in from Judy. She asked a little bit about when it comes to student loans, especially federal student loans, one of the interesting pieces of debate recently is about uh, interest rates when it comes to those loans. Uh, often those vary a great deal for some of us. If you locked in in one year, you might happen to be at a relatively modest rate. In other years, it's fairly high. Uh, but one of the common questions right now is, well, why are there interest rates on federal student loans? Private loans, perhaps that's a different question, but thinking specifically about federal student loans, uh, wouldn't it make more sense for those to be or perhaps a step in the right direction, start to move those towards something like uh, interest-free loans uh, in higher education. Uh, Jared, Neil, uh, whoever you want to take that one first, I'd love to love to hear your thoughts. Uh, it takes us a little off the immediate topic of debt relief, but I think consistent with the broader question of where do we go from here? Neil, yeah, I'm happy to take it first, unless you want to take it first. Have fun. <laughs> I don't understand interest rates. Like I, I understand interest rates, I understand the policy, but essentially the way that interest rates are determined right now, it's changed with time, but the mechanism that we use is we take the 10-year treasury note um, before the start of what is called the award year academic year. Um, and then we add a few points to the, whatever you know that interest rate is, we add a few points um, depending on your status. So if you're an undergrad, you're gonna get the fewest points if you're pursuing undergraduate education. If you are a parent or you know, a graduate borrower, you're gonna get a few more points um, if you're pursuing you know, that level of education. Um, and so it's not really based on an assessment of need, uh, save for you know, this one type of loan or actually this program that we have you know, for subsidized loans, we'll actually say, hey, these are needs-based, we'll actually subsidize the interest. Uh, which basically means we will pay interest on your loan while you are in school. Um, but after you come out of school, after your grace period, you will be responsible for then paying interest. Um, but essentially the way that, you know, the loan is, you know, interest rate is, is determined is just on when you borrow. So you can have different interest rates, even though your economic situation doesn't change. You can also have different interest rates depending on where you went to school and just really depends on economic conditions um, at that time, plus you know, additional points. There are supposed to be safe harbors that the government provides. Um, one is called, you know, or, or say what a mechanism is a cap on interest. So um, if you are undergrad or I think might also be graduate, but anyway, for, um, 
I know certainly for undergrads, the, the capital interest is around like 8%. So we say your um, loan interest rate will never go above 8%. But if you actually look at like the 30 year history of interest rates, that cap has never been effective or actually gone into effect to actually stop someone um, from having a lower interest rate. So I think, you know, one proposal that, you know, I think Judy mentioned is to have, or Alan, I think you mentioned this, is to have no interest rates, which is just basically, I borrow what I borrow, I repay, you know, I'll pay back whatever I borrowed without interest. Um, you know, I think that that is certainly one approach. It's a very expensive approach. And I think, you know, um, the price tag on that would be very, very high. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it, but, you know, um, I think, you know, again, um, as a former corporator, money matters. And so I, I care about money. Um, you know, another idea that, you know, we explored in, in the paper that we put out is to have um, interest actually determined on your income. Um, so what happens if, you know, if you're a borrower and you are not making anything, why not just continue that, you know, subsidized, you know, uh, subsidized interest rate? Um, until you start making enough where you can actually pay, you know, an interest um, on, on your loan. So maybe you make $100,000, maybe you're doing fine. Maybe interest is not a problem for you, but maybe if you're just getting started, you know, interest should not accrue. Um, it'd just be a continuation of either uh, subsidized, you know, loan program. I mean, the other thing, a feature is that, you know, the federal student loan program is based off of, or the direct program is based off of an old bank-based system that we have. Um, which was based off of another system, but it's really, you know, kind of designed to be kind of a commercial product, um, which also includes interest rates. So I understand interest rates. I, I don't know if they serve a great function in the student loan system um, that we have right now in the federal student loan system. And so I think, you know, uh, creating some reforms to actually deal with that would be helpful. Um, also, the only two mechanisms for where we have relief for interest specifically, um, save the president's, you know, uh, negative amortization, you know, policy under uh, IDR, is if you sign up for auto debit um, to have like your loans with your servicers, you can have your interest rate reduced by I think like 0.25%. So it's like 0.25% reduction in your interest rate. Um, if, if you go that route, and also through student loan interest uh, deduction, which is on the tax side, and even that is capped at a certain income as well. Um, so those are two of like, I think the only forms of relief that we actually really have for interest. So seeing some type of interest relief, I think for borrowers moving forward would be great, which is one of the reasons I think the president included this you know, negative amortization policy within his um, IDR proposal is just so that borrowers don't have this experience of having their balances balloon over and over, even though we tell them, hey, you're only responsible for a $15 payment, um, but yet interest you know, keeps getting added to the principal, and then they actually see their balance grow over time, even though they've been paying what the government told them that they should be paying. Um, anyway, I'll stop there. I have more thoughts on interest, but definitely want to hand it over to Neil um, as well. So I'm actually going to pivot and pull in another question and throw okay. this one at Neil. I think you did a great job covering some of the, the basis of our interest rate. Neil, a couple of questions that have come in have to do with the relative comparison of uh, debt forgiveness to other kinds of governmental policy. Uh, examples include, uh, in some cases, other versions of uh, debt relief for borrowers. We've seen in a number of instances colleges and universities that loaned uh, sometimes in the for-profit space or used deceptive tactics and in, in what they were offering 
those borrowers have seen their debt relieved. We also see a whole variety of different kinds of uh, financial services offered, whether that is tax deductions for homeowners and a whole variety of different pieces. So the question ultimately becomes, one, it seems like we already do just this in some ways. Why not do it more broadly and help more people? Or two, there are a whole variety of other ways in which the government is pretty heavily spending money already. Uh, given all of those different kinds of things, is this really that bad of an option? In fact, may not even be a much better option than some of those other kinds of governmental expenditures. So double whammy there. Uh, tell us why you aren't wrong on both accounts, Neil. I'm not sure what the accounts are right now, uh, <laughs> but I'll try and answer these questions. Uh, but first, can I say something about interest? Because I have Please. some interest in interest. Um, uh, the one thing I was going to say is two things. I won't get into a whole lot of my thoughts on interest, other than it is important to note that interest exists in part because of the time value of money. So if somebody takes out a 10-year loan or a 20-year loan and we have uh, inflation like we have now, that money is much less valuable. $1 20 years from now is much less valuable than it is now. So part of the reason we have interest is to try and again protect taxpayers who remember they didn't really have a say in any given loan. So we really do need to think about how do we make sure that they are made whole. Um, the other thing that's interesting though, is I was at an event uh, last week, which was largely kind of people on the right. Uh, and I was not on this panel, but I was listening to a panel about loan cancellation and then what could possibly done to make things be done to make things better. And even folks on the right were saying, well, maybe we should do something other than charge interest. Uh, there was a proposal, for instance, to charge an upfront user fee, which I believe they said was done in Australia, which sounds familiar, uh, but then not have the, the interest so that it's not sort of compounding on people. Um, and maybe that's something that you could get some sort of bipartisan agreement. I haven't really thought it through, um, so I don't know exactly where I stand on it, but it is interesting that we have people, I think, on different parts of the spectrum starting to say, well, maybe the interest charge is a problem. Now, in terms of the other things that the federal government spends money on, the first thing I would say in my defense is I probably don't like most of those other things the federal government spends money on. So the fact that they're doing these bad things to me doesn't mean let's do something else that is also, I think, a poor use of money that's poorly targeted that they'll have lots of very bad unintended consequences for society, including people who want to go to college in the future or people who don't want to college, go to college and still get a job without having to get a degree. Um, I think when we just focus on this, we say, or at least I say, this is bad, regardless of the other bad things the federal government may be doing. I do think though we can look at some other areas where the federal government has been involved and see sort of similar outcomes. Healthcare is I think the best analog to higher ed in that we have a third party payer problem there. It came from the federal government sort of incentivizing employers uh, to, to be how you pay for healthcare. You get insurance from your employer so you're no longer paying the doctors, you're paying through this insurer. It's not a surprise that healthcare prices go way up because when the people consuming the product or consuming the service aren't the ones actually paying when a third party is, that disconnects us from the, the pain that often comes with paying a high price and the discipline of having to pay with our own money. Housing is another area where the federal government has given lots of tax breaks and they've done lots of you know horrible engineering with, with insurance that they subsidize. 
Well, it's not a surprise that we've had housing bubbles that have burst on people when you've been able to get relatively easy federal student or federal housing loans to buy a house where you're doing it largely subsidized by someone else. So I think we need to deal with student debt cancellation on its own, not say, well, let's do this because we've done other bad things. But I do think there are lessons learned from other stuff the federal government has done, where if we see an analog in higher education, we should say, well, maybe that's not something we want to do. So gentlemen, we're, we're running down toward the, the end of our time together tonight. What I wanted to do is turn it over to you both for some concluding thoughts. Uh, and I'd like to encourage you to, to try and incorporate in your answers, where ought we go next? Uh, whether this policy moves forward or not, thinking more broadly about student debt and the cost of higher education, from your perspective, what would be some of the, the best kinds of next steps that we could hope to see coming out of Congress and the administration in the years to come? Uh, Jared, let me turn it over to you to first. I, I'd love to get your thoughts. Where do we go from here? Yeah, of course. And I'm going to probably also answer the last question, too, <laughs> in my remarks. But just to say that, you know, I think um, debt cancellation is also the result not only of a broken system, but of some broken programs. So we have forgiveness programs already ingrained. We have debt cancellation already ingrained into the higher education system. Um, the problem is those programs didn't work. So we have PSLF, we have you know IDR cancellation after a period of years. You know we have you know these other these other options. Um, borrowers just weren't getting the relief. Um, sometimes that was because of bad information. Maybe it was you know the complexity of these programs. Uh, but even though you know in government. Uh, Government Watchdog, the Government Accountability Office, actually has you know, assessed the variety of these programs and said that, hey, these actually didn't serve their intended purpose. Um, and so, you know, these folks should have been entitled to relief, but didn't get it. And so I, I think that, you know, with the understanding that we have a system that didn't work, we also didn't, you know, have a um, you know, forgiveness options that also didn't work um, to, to help borrowers. Um, we do need a change. Um, and so debt cancellation can be part of that understanding or part of the recognition of we did make this um, promise to, to people to actually forgive their debt if they did qualify and do you know, these sorts of things. Um, but actually, we, we just didn't do that. Um, and I think that that is also there are bipartisan opportunities. There also have been bipartisan failures, I think, in the uh, administration and management of the student loan program. And so these are things that are fixable for sure. Um, you know, I think that Neil and I might disagree uh, about how we fix the system moving forward, but I think that there's a lot of area or a lot of room for, for agreement as well. I think we both touched on college costs. I think that that is something that we definitely need to get under control. Um, and it, it, it's a problem. I think the causes of, you know, the rising cost of college, I think we'll, we'll have a, a different take on, but that's certainly something that we should look at moving forward. I also think that you know the ways that we can do that is actually having a system where we have um, institutions have skin in the game. So one thing that I've noticed in this conversation around debt cancellation is that we talk a lot about the federal government, we talk a lot about individual borrowers, um, and you know Neil and I talked a lot about institutions tonight. But I think the larger conversation that we should be having is how do we have institutions actually have skin in the game? How do we have them participate and share not only the upfront risks but also the, the burden of student debt as well? Um, and so I think campus-based aid pro programs uh, are an option where we actually have institutions buy into those systems and say we will give you some of the federal government investment. You know we'll we'll make up most of it. Um, but you actually have to contribute something, whether that be 10%, you know, or a third 
um, you know, could vary, vary by program, but actually having institutions pay into that system, I think could be helpful in controlling college costs. I'm looking at things like accountability, just holding people uh, accountable for poor outcomes, uh, for non-completion, for, you know, not providing the education that they said they were going to. And I think that includes graduate schools as well. Um, I think that we should actually take a hard look at graduate school and making sure that, you know, as professional degrees, that, you know, the education that's being provided, that the opportunities that institutions said that they would provide to students um, are actually realized. And I think affordability, we touched on this tonight, I think, you know, with the conversation around interest rates, but there's more that we can do there. There's more that we can do to ensure that we are investing in things like the Pell Grant program, that we're actually decreasing the cost of college. Um, I tell people all the time that the two ways that you can restore the purchasing power of Pell, you can increase Pell, you can also cut college costs. So I think that they're, you know, two sides of the same coin and, you know, that's something we should look at as well. Um, I, I see opportunity here, though, for a bipartisan dialogue, a conversation, um, whether or not that's going to lead to a, you know, another massive rewrite of the um, you know, Higher Education Act, the federal law that governs higher education in the United States, I think it's still up for debate. Um, but I think it's heartening to see, you know, both Democrats in the House, you know, taking, um, uh, or I, I should say releasing a bill that looks at, you know, higher education system reform, and also Republicans releasing a bill that actually looks at higher education reform, and maybe we'll move there. I think one of the things that's interesting to me in this debate, and I talked about this earlier in my opening remarks, is that the last time we had an authorization, a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act was 2008. Back then, student loan, you know, outstanding uh, loan balance was 577 billion. We haven't had one since then, and now it's 1.6 trillion. Um, there have been, you know, some tinkering around the edges with student loan policy since that time, certainly. Uh, but I think that having a congressional conversation, having a conversation where we're having hearings, and actually looking at investing, investigating these problems would be, you know, very, very helpful moving forward. Um, so with that, I'll just say thank you. I've really appreciated this discussion, the questions and uh, remarks from my colleague, Neil, as well. Um, and so hopefully we get to continue this conversation beyond tonight. But thank you all for having me. Thanks, Red. And I, I have to admit, you've mentioned a couple of times 2008. And in my head, that was like four years ago, uh, not in fact, 14 years ago. And that is terrifying. Uh, both how long it is, but also just how much student debt has grown in that stretch of time. Uh, Neil, concluding thoughts, where where do we go from here? Yeah, well, well, that 2008 really puts it in perspective. Um, I would say that I, I'm a little, you know, it takes Congress a long time to do anything. I will say, though, if we have the president sort of on his own change policy, that does take away some of the impetus for Congress to do its job and really look at these programs and, and figure out what to do with them. Uh, and I think Congress has punted their authority on way too many things. It's not just student debt. Um, but to, to put it on more of a high note, I actually think that Jared has hit on a bunch of things already that you could get bipartisan support to look at. We, I don't think you'll get everybody agreeing on exactly how these things should be handled. But from my observation, there are a few things that are starting to get at least bipartisan support among wonks. So, you know, folks like Jared and me and other people who don't, you know, have real jobs and, and we just sit around our basement all day. Um, but I will first lay out my cards. I think we should phase out all student aid. Politically, that's unrealistic. But I think the third party payer problem is a tremendous problem that is a major cause of why college is so expensive and why we have too many degrees out there. But 
most people are not on board with uh, phasing out all student aid. I hope we get there. I'm working on it, but we're not there yet. But I do, I'm starting to see some, again, kind of cross wonk agreement on things like the grad plus loan. So that's, this is a loan for you to go to graduate school. It used to have a cap on it. They got rid of the cap. I increasingly see people say, maybe we should put the cap back on grad loans or maybe even get rid of grad plus loans because this is where the biggest growth in debt and lending has been is at graduate school level, not as undergrads. And there's a good argument that if you're going to graduate school, you really demonstrate you're gonna have pretty decent earning potential. And maybe you can get loans in the private sector instead of through taxpayers. Um, I would also like to get rid of 529 plans. I mean, lots of people have them, but they are really geared toward upper income people to save money, to go to colleges. That also sort of pushes up the price. Um, I think I've seen some bipartisan agreement on maybe simplifying student aid and student loans. I mean, I can't run through everything, but if you go to like the federal student aid websites, there are about, I think last I counted, 8 billion different sorts of ways to repay your loans. That's probably 8 billion is a little bit much, but there's pay, repay, IDR, IBR, PSLF, all these terms that are out there. And I think it's really hard for people to figure out how do I repay these loans? Or at the beginning, what loans should I take out? Um, there have been proposals to have like one loan program, one income-driven repayment, one standard repayment, and that's it. Maybe one other thing. I really think there could be agreement on simplifying a very complex and confusing system. Uh, I haven't seen as much agreement on this. I think maybe if we're going to have federal student loans, there should be underwriting that is based on the demonstrated ability of somebody to likely succeed in college and in a field for which there's demand. In the past, we've talked about underwriting financial aids and some of these, like Parent Plus has some minor financial underwriting saying, well, we make sure that for at least to some degree, we expect that you have the financial wherewithal to pay these loans off. But that kind of defeats the purpose of a federal loan. The federal loan exists for people who don't necessarily have the federal financial wherewithal, but do have the ability to benefit from college so that they, that, that ability to pay isn't an impediment. So I, I don't think we should be looking at that sort of financial underwriting, but maybe we should look at some assessment of potential borrowers about, do they have the indicators that they're likely to succeed in a program? And is that program an area where they can likely get a job that enables them to pay back their loans? because we're not helping people if we have a good expectation that we're gonna saddle them with debt they can't repay. And then the last thing that Jared mentioned, pardon me, that I've seen a lot of support for is this idea of skin in the game, that the colleges should be responsible for some share of student defaults. You know, and there may be a floor of if you 5% or 10% of your grads default, then you have to, as an institution, pick up half of that defaulted amount. I think that makes sense because again, uh, well, maybe we haven't mentioned this. The one entity that clearly benefits from student loans is higher education itself. Colleges and universities get this money. And for the most part, it doesn't matter how well they do with those students. They're getting the money and they're keeping it. Skin in the game may be a good way to deal with that. And I think you could get bipartisan agreement. The only concern is a school like Harvard or Princeton or Yale, they are going to have very few defaults because they're tending to people, tending to take students who are 
you know, exquisitely prepared, usually already wealthy people. And so they don't have much risk. The risk increasingly gets borne by the schools that are actually working with people who have obstacles in their lives um, and aren't just sort of on easy streets the way that often people at Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, place like that are. So there is this something to consider that, well, are we going to hurt the institutions that are actually trying to work with people who are not necessarily the academic elite? Uh, but I do think skin in the game is something you could get a lot of bipartisan support around because everybody recognizes that the colleges are making a lot of money off of these loans and other student aid, and they don't really have any risk. Jared, Neil, thank you both so much for a fantastic conversation this evening. I really enjoyed uh, both the, the candor with which you brought the conversation to the table, but also the civility you showed in engaging in a whole variety of different perspectives on these issues. Uh, I know it was exceptionally informative for me, uh, and I really hope it was for teachers as well. I want to make a couple of very quick announcements uh, at the end of the session here as a, a, a bit of a, a heads up for our teachers joining us. Uh, after this event, we will clean up the, the video recording and share it with all of you and anyone else who's registered. And we'll also, of course, uh, send out professional development certificates for those of you attending tonight. Really do appreciate you all being here. Uh, two additional heads up about uh, upcoming Sphere programming. First, we're going to be uh, having a, a seminar or another webinar on October 11th with my colleague Marion Tupi on his new book, Superabundance. Should be a fantastic conversation. I do hope many of you will be able to join us. Also, I wanted to give you all a heads up. Uh, many of you are alumni of our Sphere Summit program. We'll be launching that again in summer 2023. Uh, Applications will be opening in the next handful of weeks, but we will be offering one track at the beginning of July for teachers new to Sphere Summit, one again at the end of July for those of you alumni and those teaching advanced subjects. I hope to see, uh, well, frankly, all of you there this summer. It will be a pleasure. Again, thank you, Jared. Thank you, Neil. Really appreciate you all being here tonight for the fantastic conversation. Thank you, teachers, for your work. Best of luck in the upcoming uh, semester, and good luck for those of you unfortunately dealing with the hurricane. I hope it does not impact any of you too terribly much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to host you all. Thank you so much, and good night. <laughs>